Turn in your Bibles tonight, if you would, to the wonderful and spectacular fifth chapter of the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 5. And in this chapter, and as I scrambled a little bit, you know, it's always interesting to see how God orchestrates things. And so I was studying chapter 5 to teach tonight. Became pretty clear to me why the Lord had us delay our normal worship night and just spend some time in His Word. Because we very often need to be reminded that the victory's already been won. But we need to be prepared to receive the victory. We need to get ready to enter in and to take in what the Lord has given us. And tonight as we study chapter 5, set the stage for you a little bit. The nation of Israel has crossed over the Jordan. They put their feet in the river and it parted. The people are across. They're safely in the promised land. And in doing so, it sent a tremendous message to the people who were already in the land, to the Canaanites, to the Jebusites, to those that already dwelled there. And so it was very clear that something special was about to happen, and there was little that those inhabiting the land before the Jews got there could do about it. It was very clear. And in fact, as we'll see and have seen in chapter 2, the Canaanites were already afraid. There was already some fear brewing in their hearts and in their minds. And their fears now would likely totally demoralize them because they saw something happen that was unexplainable. You, you couldn't put a human cause on it. The Jews didn't build a dam. They didn't all march out there together and try and divert the water with their feet, you know, as we young men usually try and do whenever we find something that's flowing and it's made out of water. We see if we can gain some type of power over it by stacking rocks. That's what us guys do. But that wasn't the case. The Ark of the Covenant stood in the middle of the river and the water stopped. And as long as they were there, the waters held up. And now it was absolutely clear that the children of Israel were united in whatever they were going to do, because they all went across. And so there's some tremendous lessons that the Lord has for us here, spiritual lessons for us as the church, wonderful lessons in how we're to live our lives. I think very, very often victories themselves can be a hindrance to our walks. Because the more of them we have, the more tempting it is to think that we may have had something to do with those victories. And the Lord's going to make it very clear that it was He that won this victory for them. As Isaiah 55 rightly says, God's ways are not our ways. Amen? 
that His ways are above our ways, and they are so far above our ways that neither can we know them nor find them out, is what that passage says there in verses 8 and 9. God just simply operates the way God operates because He's God. And I want to remind you, He doesn't owe us, you, me, anyone an explanation for how He works. He doesn't check in with me every morning and ask me what I want to do. He's in charge. And as the nation had crossed over on the tenth day of the first month, the events that are described here uh, likely lasted for ten days. And then they marched around Jericho for another six days. So these events in these next two chapters took two weeks and a little bit after they were in the promised land. Now I can tell you from a military standpoint, that makes about zero sense. Amen? If you've got the enemy less than two miles away, when you think about it from a human standpoint, what follows in chapter 5 is about as dumb as a sack of rocks. And you have to ask yourself, what? Really? This is what you want me to do, God? The longer I have walked with the Lord, the more of those, what? Really? This is what you want me to do? God, things I have happen in my life. Are you sure? And I also want to remind you, it's perfectly okay to question God every once in a while. He understands that you are you and he is he. And that we are not him. He knows the difference between the two. And so the victory itself was something that God had already won. It was something that they were going to receive. But they were not ready to receive it yet. And that's the story of tonight's chapter. They needed to commit themselves fully and wholly and completely to God. And as you look at the backdrop of this chapter, it really began 40 years earlier in disobedience. It began 40 years earlier in God temporarily rescinding the covenant with them because from the time they wandered in the wilderness day one to the time that they are now standing at, not one male child was born that could participate in the Passover because you had to be circumcised to do that. And so in their wilderness wandering, though God took care of them miraculously, they were still wandering in disobedience. And so they were not ready to receive the inheritance that the Lord had for them. Do you see the picture for us? If you're here tonight and you're walking in direct disobedience to God, you will not receive the inheritance God has for you. You will continue to wander in the wilderness. You cannot walk in direct disobedience to the things of God and expect God to bless you. 
not in any area of your life, and I'm talking about direct disobedience, not things to where you're uncertain, possibly, about what God feels about a certain subject, but in an area where God has thus spoken and said, thus says the Lord, and you say, oh no, God didn't say that. We need to be prepared to receive what God has for us. And that is chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way you speak to us through your word. And we pray tonight that as we open it and partake of it, Lord, that it would be as the bread of life to us, that it would change us and mold us and transform us and shape us. Lord, we thank you for the power that it has in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you challenge us, you get us ready, you prepare us. And so, Lord, as we study, prepare our hearts to receive. We ask these things in the blessed name of Jesus, our Savior. All God's people said, Amen. Verse 1 here in Joshua 5, And so it was, when all of the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan, remember they've come from the east side, uh, which would be modern-day Jordan, the Transjordan region, uh, which would have been the desert of Moab. It's where the Moabites lived. They came from the eastern side. They're crossing from the east to the west. They came now to the western side. And all of the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea. So when you go today to Israel and you travel through the land, uh, you will see throughout Israel the Canaanite ruins. And they are chiefly along the coast. And then they are uh, found inland as you head in towards the Sea of Galilee and towards the city of Dan. So you had the coastal peoples and you had those who lived in the inland valleys. So these two groups of people, very powerful, very warlike. They lived in fortified cities. They were very well prepared for this ragtag band that had just miraculously crossed the flood-swollen Jordan River that may have been more than a mile wide. So here are these kings. The kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord, notice this, it's very important that you grasp what God is saying here because the context is quite clear. God had made it evident through the obedience of his people, that he himself was for them. God had made it evident through the obedience of his people that God himself was for them. When we live righteous lives and we do what God's word says and we proclaim that with our faith-filled action, God receives the glory for it. He gets the credit for it. It's known far and wide. It could not be you, it must be him. And so these pagan kings knew that Yahweh, Adonai, the Lord of hosts, had done these things. The Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel, until we had all crossed over, and their heart melted. That's another way of saying they were scared chicken skin. They were like EVGBs going, uh-oh, this is bad news for us. And there was no spirit in them any longer because 
of the children of Israel. Now, when you think about the children of Israel, you have to imagine what this group actually looked like. Remember, there were 40,000 actual warriors amongst 2 million people. So it wasn't like it was some mighty fighting force that marched into the land of massive numbers. They were probably outnumbered at least 10 to 1 in the region. And so as they enter into the land and they are afraid, they are afraid not because of what they see, but because of what they know. When when people contact you, do they know that the Lord is for you? Do they understand fully that God is on your side because you honor him? These pagan kings knew that. That was the power of the obedient witness. And then he says, the are you kidding me verse. And at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again a second time. Now, if you know anything about the children of Israel, this was the sign of the covenant. This was the specific sign that only the Jews participated in. And it was something that was abandoned as they wandered in the wilderness. So that is the reason for the phrasing a second time. It was supposed to be something that they were always doing, but they had not been doing it because they were wandering in disobedience. So they were unfaithful to the covenant of God, and God said, fine, live the way you want in the wilderness. And so a second time, they're going to submit themselves to this painful ritual, this minor surgery that undoubtedly would have made the entire fighting force of the children of Israel absolutely incapable of battle for at least a week or so. Think about it for a second. They were now going to undergo, and this was not with anesthesia in a doctor's office, this was out in the field with a flint knife. And I know I'm being a little bit descriptive here, but it's helpful to realize the context of what's going on here. Something that we do in a hospital, they were going to do with a piece of rock in the field. Sharp rock can be even surgically sharp rock, I might add. But nonetheless, they're going to undergo this procedure. Now, if you're a human being and you're a military commander, you're going to be thinking Joshua has completely lost his mind. Matter of fact, you're going to be tempted to believe that not only is he not hearing from God, he's hearing, he ate some kind of bush on the other side of the river and he's now experiencing the effects of it. There's something seriously wrong with our leadership from a human perspective. But if you are a believer in the Most High God, you immediately recognize what God is asking here. God is saying, I want to restore my covenant relationship with you. And I want you to trust me. And I want you to do exactly what I tell you to do. And I want you to walk by faith. So you have two choices here. You can walk by sight. And you can get the battle 
in your own strength, or you can walk by faith and you can have the Lord fight the battle for you. In verse 3 it says, And so Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel on the hill of foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them all, that all the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. And so now you get the picture. There's a whole generation that have no idea of the covenant relationship that they're supposed to have with God. They are so entrenched, they are so out of touch with God, that they don't even remember why it is this process happens. That's what happens when you stop teaching the Word. That's what happens when you wander in the wilderness. Pretty soon you raise up whole generations that have no idea about the character of God. I would say to you that our nation is very much in that same place right now. We have whole generations of people who have no idea what it's like to walk in obedience to the Word of God. We make up our own rules as we go. We tell God what He is supposed to accept. We do not do what He says we should do. We try and do what we think we should do. And so to prepare them to enter into the promised land in fullness and receive what God had for them, He's saying, look, we need to square something up. And so he goes on now. After they had come out of Egypt, for all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way had not been circumcised. And so they're outside of the covenant relationship with God. For the children of Israel walked for 40 years in the wilderness until all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Do you get the correlation? Think about it for a second. It becomes so unbelievably clear. They're outside the covenant relationship. They have wandered in the wilderness of sin. They have disobeyed the voice of the Lord, and they have been completely disobedient to the things that God has commanded them to do. And so because of that, a whole generation perished in the wilderness. To whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn by their fathers, that he would give it to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. This was a covenant nation. They were a covenant people. That covenant was made with Abraham. You can read about it there in in Genesis chapter 12, beginning. It's reiterated in Genesis chapter 15. It's spoken again of in Genesis chapter 17. And so God gave them this sign, as weird as it may be to us. We sit around in our day and time and go, really? Seriously? That was the best sign you could get? It couldn't have been a tattoo or something? But God had told them this was the sign. 
And then he told them why. He said it was likened unto the cutting away of the tablet of the heart. He says, look, guys, I'm making a covenant with you. And the covenant I make with you is a covenant that your heart belongs to me. They became a marked people. It meant they were under obligation to obey him. It was a covenant that came with condition, conditions. I will be your God and you will be my people and you will obey my word. That was part of the covenant. And the covenant reminded them that their bodies belonged to God. They were not to be used in any way, shape, or form for sinful purposes. And this is really important when you realize who's in the land that they are going to inherit. Because the land was God's land, but the people in it were as far from God as anyone could get. Can I say to you that the earth and the fullness of it, your Bible says, belongs to the Lord. So this whole earth, every bit of it is actually his But who inhabits it? People who largely do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. People who largely do not honor the Lord Most High. People who have a perverted view of virtually everything that's on this earth. We walk in the same dangerous place because God has made us a covenant people by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? We've been brought near by His blood. We've actually been purchased. Matter of fact, our sins have been remitted. They've been put away. But with that comes our part. And that's obedience to his commands. You don't get to live your life however you want. And neither do I. He has made demands of us that we are to be as he is, holy. We are to live our lives in righteousness. That means that we have definite opinions about how life is supposed to be lived because he has definite opinions about how life is supposed to be lived. And so if you want to inherit all that he has, you've got to do things his way. That's the picture here to the Jewish people. That mark reminded them that they were a sacred people, a separated people, a holy nation. You can see that in Exodus chapter 19. All of these things that have led up to this are the context of Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is what God's spoken to them. He said, look, here's what I told you through Moses. As I shared with you, there are Numbers 13 and 14. When they reached the, the promised land the last time, 40 years earlier, they failed to believe God. Can I tell you that a lot of times I have people in my office who fail to believe God? They absolutely know what God's Word says. They can quote it chapter and verse, and they absolutely refuse to do it. They will look me right in the eye and say, I know it says that, but I just believe God's got a different plan for me. That, my friends, is a recipe for you to wander in the wilderness and for you to not receive the inheritance that God has for you. God disciplined those people. 
and a full generation of them died off, I might add. And so if during their wilderness journey Israel was tempted in sin, how much more do you think they would be tempted now entering a land inhabited by people who absolutely lived in abject sin? They were tempted in the wilderness with no one and no thing to sin. Remember the golden calf incident? Nobody put them up to that. That wasn't, you know, there weren't a whole bunch of golden calf worshipers. That was out of their own doing, their own heart. Now imagine that they have an evil influence now. A completely pagan influence now. How much more tempted do you think they would be to fall right back into the garbage that they were supposed to have left? And so it was a picture of Deuteronomy chapter 10 that said there as Moses is giving them the original command, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer a stiff-necked people, a disobedient people. So this whole ritual is very important because God is illustrating, look, you guys had it your way for 40 years. You guys did everything you said you wanted to do. I even disbanded for a short period of time my covenant with you, not on my end, but I allowed you to forsake it. And you did. And look what it got you. All you did was wander around and whine about what you used to have in Egypt where you were in bondage. And so he's illustrating a clear point to us as his people. They thought long and hard about these things. They were under that absolute obligation. Notice the spiritual significance here. The the physical operation that was on their body was sign of a spiritual operation that was supposed to be in here. And God does that a lot, doesn't he? You've walked with the Lord for a long time. You know that some of those things that seem to be simple decisions in life, things that you could have two different ways to look at it, or five different ways, or ten different ways to look at it, there's decisions to be made, and you can make them one way or another, and they're not that complex. God's testing your heart. He's trying to see, are you going to do this or not? One of the ravages of our modern day and time, and I'll just give you an example, is pornography. It's a heart issue, folks. It's a heart issue. Because nobody, nobody can keep you from doing what you want to do. You may not view it in public. You may erase your browsing history. You may throw away that filthy piece of paper. It's a heart issue. God still saw it. That's why sin begins in the mind and goes to the heart. And so they were supposed to be remembering the covenant. And quite frankly, 
there are a bunch of people that say, well, I go to church. I own a really nice, big, fat study Bible. I even, I even gave one time at church. I almost went on a missions trip. I had a near miss with witnessing to somebody one time. I thought about it. You have a lot of people who, who think that because their actions seem to indicate that they might have a relationship with the Lord, their heart is far from the Lord. And God's saying, look, in this time of preparation, to get ready for the victory that's going to be delivered into your hands, I want your hearts right. we got to be square here, not just here and not just here. Not just the head, not just the hands, but in the heart. The seat of the Spirit. Tremendous spiritual significance. And, and really, Moses in Deuteronomy 30 had already warned them about this particular sin. The prophets did the same. We've already studied Hosea and Amos. Yeah, Joel. Hadn't they talked about these very things? I said, look, you can't keep going this way. You can't keep doing these things. By the time we get to the New Testament, and of course John the Baptist says, he just flat out says it, look, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He doesn't say, well, you know, God understands that you don't quite agree with him, and so he's going to change his opinion. God's not going to change his opinion for you. He already stated it. He put it in his word. And so when the world attempts to say, you know, look, well, you know, we think that was just uh, how the world was then. It's not how it is now. The world is supposed to be now how God says it is to be. We're not supposed to be going the wrong way. We're supposed to be going the right way. We're not supposed to be going away from him. We're supposed to be going towards him. It's a hard issue. The lordship issue. And God always allows that part of us to get tested. That's, that's where our faith hits the ground. Amen? It's where, it's where it comes into play. And so, here's how it gets brought into play for these people. God is going to temporarily disable every able fighting man that entered into the promised land on that day. Inside of Jericho, two miles away at Gilgal. That's nuts. That's kind of like saying, here we are, come kill us. Look, we can't get out of our own way. Come run us through with a spear. You want to come stone us? Fine. We'd probably be better off anyway. God's putting their faith to test. He's saying, look, do you guys trust me? Or are you trusting you? Because it's easy to get, let me put this very bluntly for you, it's easy to get amped up on Jesus for a day or two. Amen? 
Probably most of us have had that kind of spiritual experience. You know, maybe you go to a camp or a crusade or you go on a missions trip or you go someplace and you got a couple things that have happened. You're just like, yay, Jesus. Jesus rocks. You know, you become really excited. And then a day later, it steps down a notch. And then two days later, you're kind of like, hey, Jesus. And then it becomes like, Jesus who? Jesus what? So he lets our faith get tested. That's what he's doing with these guys. He's putting them as sitting ducks. Makes them lame. And so it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp until they were healed. Pretty plain what was going on there. Not going nowhere. You know, most of you had, if you've had an outpatient procedure, you know, the simplest things can lay you up for a few days. And there they were, camped just a few miles from Jericho. Golden opportunity for the enemy to come in and wipe them out, that's for sure. And so Joshua encourages the people to obey the Lord, irregardless of what their head was telling them. Such a powerful lesson for us. And it really applies in one very specific place, and that's his word. Because there's a lot of things we read in his word and we're going, yeah, really? I I cannot tell you how many hundreds of people I've talked to about relationship things. And they will declare themselves to be a Christian. And then they will go on explaining to me why they are immune to the plain teaching of God's word. Well, God already sees us as married. So that's your excuse for your fornication. Well, you know, I really don't get actually drunk. I only have like four or five beers. You know, drunk something different. Well, I don't smoke that much pot. I only use it for medicinal purposes. God's not fooled by any of it. And he didn't change his mind because you came up with some good excuse that you think flies. Well, I know he loves me. Mm, If he did, he wouldn't be doing that. You see, man's been tempted for a very, very, very long time to do his things his way. And God is saying, look, if you want to inherit what I have for you, then we need to square something away here. I drive, you're the passenger. I'll tell you where you're going to go. And I'll tell you how you're going to get there. Now, do you have freedom? Of course. Tremendous freedom. 
You have freedom to live righteously in Christ Jesus and to forsake the old and to put on the new and to receive the blessing of doing it. And it's a thrill because you get to see God work in ways that you won't see in disobedience. And so they arrive in the land. And after we've experienced a a victory, God very often allows us to be tested. You have a number of occasions in Scripture that I can point you to. You remember Abraham? What happened to him? He gets to the land of promise. What's the first thing that happens to him? The land overflowing with milk and honey. Famine. The first thing that hits him. This is it? This is the land of milk and honey. Like the land of rock and sand to me. And so he's tempted to take things into his own hand. Do it his own way. You remember Elijah when he overcame the prophets of Baal? He's like up there, yay God. He's got a megaphone. He's got his little shaker things, you know. Boo, prophets of Baal, you know. Says my God's way more awesome than yours. Matter of fact, so much so I'm going to pour water on my sacrifice and let's see what happens. And he wins this incredible victory. Within two days, he's hiding in a ditch from a little girl. Why? Because he was threatened with death. Wasn't he threatened with death by the prophets of Baal? And so all of a sudden, some girl, Jezebel, comes, well, you know, my king's going to kill you. And so he runs away and hides. His faith got tested. Do you believe God or do you not believe God? Matter of fact, it happened to Jesus, didn't it? He was baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. What's the next thing that happens? straight out into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days. Mind, body, spirit. Great victories can cause the greatest among us to think that maybe we had something to do with it. I've arrived. I'm a super saint now. You little uniform with an SS on the front of it. Super Saint. Get your own little cheer going. Verse 9. And then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Get this. For 40 years, the reproach of Egypt had been upon them. Walking in rebellious disobedience in a place that they didn't want to be. And every time a group of people saw the children of Israel walking in the wilderness, every time people in this town see you at the fireside, every time they hear you swear and tell some filthy joke, every time you tip the glass to your mouth, 
Every time you're in a relationship you shouldn't be in, every time you say you're for gay marriage, every time you say, well, I think abortion is a woman's right to choose, every time you bring reproach to God. Every time. Every time. And God is saying we can change that. Let's take away the reproach of Egypt. It wasn't that they were in bondage and slavery. That wasn't their fault. They were set free from that. The bondage was they returned to the bondage in the wilderness by disobeying the Lord. He says, let's get it squared away. Let's get back to a covenant relationship. I'll tell you how you live your life and you live it that way. How about we do it that way? And so they're there at Gilgal, which means literally to, to roll away. You see, their unbelief and their lack of faith had caused them to wander in a place that they were never designed to be. Do you realize that from day one, that they, picture this, that they crossed over the Red Sea, they were supposed to go straight to the Promised Land. And in fact, they almost made it. In Jesus' name, would you please not be one of those people who almost made it? You nearly got there. I was that close. At Kadesh Barnea, they used Moses to have the same appeal before God. And you know what Moses told them? He says, God will destroy us rather than let us wander in, in sin forever. Read Numbers chapter 14. And so the Egyptians immediately could start spreading the word about the, oh, well, they don't believe it. I mean, God got them across there, wiped us out in the process, but look what they did with what they got. Oh, dear family, don't ever let that be you. Don't ever let the people of this world say of our God, Look what they did with what they got. How many people, and I can tell you I'm one of them, how many people have used that excuse for why they don't want to be a Christian? Because they met Christians. How many people use the excuse, well, I don't believe in God because I've seen what Christians do and how they live. How many people say, why would I want to be like that? Because unbelievers do the same thing, but they're intellectually honest about it. They'll just tell you, yeah, I like smoking crack. And the Christian's going, well, you know, I only do it recreationally. Not a good thing to bring a reproach to the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They had crossed over. And it was a picture now, the first time, it was a picture really of them passing over into, into new life. And now it's a picture of them passing over into blessing. You know, when you get saved, a couple of things happen to you, amen? You get freed from the bondage of sin and death, amen? If you don't know that, you now know that. You, you, you get freed of that bondage. But you're also bought and paid for with a price, and you are made justified, made just as if you had never sinned. 
because you are now identified with the very Son of God who is perfect in His glory. So in this picture, the first time they had been brought out of bondage, they'd been released from sin and death, they were going to die in Egypt, amen? But God now is going to bring them across the Jordan so that they can be identified with God. That their character would be like His. You see, you want both things to happen. You don't just want Jesus Christ as Savior, you want Him as Lord. You want to do what you do because He wants you to do that. And so they were saved in that sense. And as they crossed over, they, they would really be baptized into new life. We're saved from the penalty of sin because of the substitution that's been made for us. Amen? Think about it. Romans 5.8 we've been, we've been saved from the penalty. You see, you used to be dead in your trespasses and sin. The penalty of that was eternal damnation. You've been saved from that. Because Jesus died for you. But you're also saved from the power of sin. Because you're now identified with Christ. You're His. These are the two crossings. Saved from the penalty and saved unto new life. So when you're baptized, guess what happens? You're identifying with the whole picture. The old life gets buried. You're raised up in new life. You're now identified with Christ. They just got baptized. In mass. World's largest baptism. Two million people at once. You see, as I believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am saying, yes, Lord, I believe that's true. I'm not saying to God, well, I'd like to have it my own way. I'm saying, I believe your way. Give me that way and let me live like that. You can't take the substitution without the identification. It can't happen. Now, it's a process called maturation where you start to mature in things of God. It doesn't happen all at once. It doesn't have to happen all at once. But it should be happening. And for 40 years in the children of Israel, it did not happen. They refused to grow. And if you read that story, what you find is failure after failure after failure, lack of faith after lack of faith after lack of faith, disbelief, leading to their leader smiting the rock, not once but twice, and himself not entering in because of unbelief. That's what wandering in the wilderness can do for you. We are now identified with Christ. And so our Heart circumcision, if you will, is a, is a spiritual one. It's a spiritual surgery. For us, it, it's our entire body of flesh. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Amen? And the life that I now live, I live for Him. You see, a lot of Christians don't like that part. There's a whole lot of people who profess to be Christians who don't like that part. 
They like the getting saved part and missing hell part. That's pretty universal. Yep. You ask somebody, hey, would you like to go to hell? They'll usually say, well, no, not really. But if you ask somebody if they want Jesus as Lord, they'll go, hmm. to do. Mm, no. Not that. They make all their excuses. I'm a victim. It's one of my favorite excuses. I'm a victim. I can't help myself. That's another one of my favorite excuses. I can't help myself. I am genetically disposed to being a thief. In case you haven't noticed, virtually everything's a disease now. I mean, virtually everything that is considered sin in Scripture is considered a disease. Got this issue, got that issue. It's all because I got issues. Like we're the first people on earth to ever have issues. Amen? Mankind's always had issues. That's why we need Jesus. So we can not have issues anymore. We reckon it to be so. And then we have the victory over the sense of the flesh. If you want to reckon it to be truth, all that sin, then you will walk in the sin. You want to see that? Go to the Human Rights Campaign office in Washington, D.C. You'll see people who have absolutely declared with their life that this lifestyle that we're going to live is absolutely okay you'll find people who profess themselves to be Christians. They have bought the lie. You'll find the same thing uh, in relationships all over America. I've had people come into my office and tell me, well, we don't really want to get married because we'll lose some of our state benefits. Dead serious as a heart attack. Don't want to get married because right now we're getting double benefits because we're both single as far as the government's concerned. So we're not going to get married. Do you honestly think that God is not able to provide for you apart from the U.S. government or the state or the county? Because if he's tied to that, we're all dead as dead ducks on the road. God's not able to overcome our government. We're in trouble. And so, as we contrast this with the Jews, you see, we've experienced that inward cutting away the tablet of our heart. It's like, look, Lord, I'm yours. My uselessness is gone. I want you to give me what you want. And then they began to remember the Lord's goodness. Pick up in verse 10. And now the children of Israel camped at Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after Passover and the unleavened bread and the parched grain on the very same day. All of these are pictures of the Passover Seder. These things that, that gave them spiritual significance as though they were seeing the finished work of Jesus Christ right before their eyes. Notice what happens next. For 40 years, God had provided for them miraculously manna. It had continued to 
this day. Why? Because he had to. If he didn't provide for them, they were dead. They weren't ready to take of the bread themselves. They needed to give, get what God gave them. And then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten of the produce of the land. You, you see, if you want God's best, you got to give him yours. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, and they ate of the food of the land of Canaan that year. They literally entered in. You remember what they did with the manna? Whined, grumbled, complained, despised it, hated it, said we don't want this. In fact, God, as he was providing for them, was also giving them a way of remembering what it was that they had in Egypt. And he was going to tell them, look, you're done in Egypt. You're finished in Egypt. No more thinking about Egypt. Here's the promised land. You see, there's some things that we must not ever forget. There's a lot of things in life that we should forget, amen? Some of the things in our, in our past lives are good to forget. But it's also good to not forget the things that we've been delivered from, amen? Because when you remember what you've been delivered from, you're a whole lot less likely to go back to that, as Scripture calls it, vomit. And so they were to never forget that they were the redeemed. And they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's what Passover was, wasn't it? That's what they were to remember. We're redeemed by the blood. They put the blood on the doorpost, on the king post, on the lintels of their windows. They said, look, we're covered by the blood. And so now they're entering in and they're eating of the fat of the land because they have the covenant part right. I'm saved by the blood, I've entered into the land, I'm no longer under the bondage, and I can eat of the good things of the Lord now. You will never eat of the good things of the Lord until you give up the bondage and enter in. You want to stay in bondage, it's your choice. But if you do, you'll never have what God wants for you. He fed them the bread of angels. And quite frankly, too many professed Christians contradict that profession by exhibiting the same appetite that they had before they got saved. Doing the same things they used to do before they met Jesus. And it ought not be so. They still lusted after the food of Egypt and God saying, look, we need to break this. You want to enter in? Eat of the harvest of the good things. Verse 13, and it came to pass. And when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite of him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And so he said, No. He wasn't for the adversaries, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. You see the picture? It's a pre-incarnate visit by the Lord Jesus himself. As commander of the Lord's armies, I have come. 
You've entered in. I've come. You've been obedient. I've come. I'll fight this battle for you because I'm actually Jesus is the commander of the Lord's armies. That's why I tell you this isn't my church. It's, it's the Lord's church. The whole church is the Lord's church. Every building filled with believers is his. It doesn't belong to any pastor. It doesn't belong to a board. It isn't part of an organization or a denomination. It belongs to the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, Notice what he says. What does my Lord say to his servant? Interesting word translated Lord there. Because it is Yahweh Adonai. Master. God. And then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot. For the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. As you read the book of the law, and as no doubt Joshua had read it, right after the Lord had ministered to to Israel and, and they had made the golden calf, he said to him in Exodus 33, he said, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. He says, we don't want to go except where you are. We don't want to be except where you want us to be. We don't want to do except what you want us to do. And so as you see this pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus here in the book of Joshua, you get a picture of how God's always been at work. Always providing mankind with a ability to see him. And I will tell you that there's a certain amount of loneliness that goes with leadership. Because there's a lot of times when people look at you and go, really? And you got to trust that you heard from God. Because if you throw it out there for people's opinions, you're going to get more opinions than you know what to do with. For every one person, there'll be two or three opinions. And there are times when you just have to say, thus says the Lord. And I'm going to do what God says. The day after the attack on Pearl Harbor, so it would have been December 8, 1941, President Harry Truman said, to be the President of the United States is to be lonely. Very lonely at times because of very great decisions. And it's kind of a picture of Joshua. Because he's just told and now done exactly what God told him to do, and it has disabled his entire army. And now he's going by himself near the city of Jericho. And he bumps into somebody who could possibly be an adversary. And he has the guts to say, are you for us or against us? Notice he didn't say, I surrender. He didn't come up with some lie 
He said, are you for us or are you against us? Because we're for the Lord. He went with confidence. And so that promise that the Lord had made to them was becoming very real. In this final sequence of verses, there are several things that you can see. And the Lord's basically telling them, look, I'm with you. You may not think it, but I am. I got here before you did. And I'm going to be here after you leave. And I'm actually the commander, not you. And I have it under control. They needed to be prepared for the victory. So that when the battle was raging, they wouldn't look at the things that happened and go, look what we made. Look what we did. They would proclaim, God did this. It wasn't me. It wasn't us. It wasn't great military strategy. It wasn't superiority of force. The Lord was here before us. And the Lord is here still. Great Chinese Bible teacher, Watchman Nee, wrote his memoirs. He says, not until we take the place of a servant can he take his place as our Lord. That's why Joshua was a forerunner of the Lord Jesus. And that's why Jesus said, without me, you can do zip, nada. Nothing. There in John chapter 15. And so you'll see three little things here at the end. And you can see them in Joshua's life. First, he humbly worshipped the Lord. Then he walked with the Lord. And then he was ready to wage some warfare. If you don't worship the Lord, and if you're not walking with the Lord... You're not ready to do battle with the Lord. So the picture for us is this. If we're going to get ready for victory, we need to let him cut away whatever he wants to cut away. And then we need to be obedient exactly to what he says. Even some things that we may disagree with. And if we do that, He fights the battle for us, and we simply possess the victory. If you don't do that, then you get to fight the battle, come what may. Joshua and the church are a picture. We've already been given our inheritance, family. We're in Christ, amen? One day we're going to receive the full reward of it but you've already been given the inheritance. You had the Holy Spirit given to you as a guarantee, a wedding band. and say, look, I got this. So get ready for the victory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, we pray that you would just help us in our, in our moments of unbelief and lack of faith and Lack of trust, Lord, when we 
say with our actions something different than we should say because we're your children. Lord, in those times of rebellion and disobedience, thank you, God, that you you don't just smite us. You'd be right to, but you don't because you love us. We pray that those gentle encouragements of your spirit as you convict of sin and righteousness, God, that we would listen and act and do what you ask of us so that we might have that inheritance in full. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. And we pray that as we look forward to your soon coming, Lord, we don't know when you're going to sound that trumpet and come for your church, but we do believe it's soon. We pray that we'd be found ready. Lord, that we'd be looking, looking for and hastening the day of the great coming of our God and King. We bless you. We thank you for this time tonight. Continue to use us, Lord. Transform us. May we be obedient to all that you command of us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen and amen. We made it. Entire chapter. Again. Next one, not so much. We're not going to make it all the way through.